Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. Today, I'm going to have my conversation with Brooke Bumpers and Bill Ferreira about telehealth and its developments during the pandemic. For example, which changes both of them have seen from regulators as far as licensing, coverage restrictions and reimbursement for this thriving part of the industry. As always, I'm trying to keep the intro short as we're going to each other after this for some housekeeping. With further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Hi, welcome to Talking the Cure. I have two people on the line who are going to talk about the telehealth industry and their view on it and what they work on right now. So at first, I would like to introduce Brooke and after that, Bill. So Brooke, if you would like to introduce yourself. Sure. This is Brooke Bumpers. I am in the Washington, D.C. office of Hogan Lovells in our health practice group. And among other things, one of the issues that I've been working on for a number of years now Uh, it's telehealth and, and telemedicine, and things sort of were, were plugging along at a re relatively slow pace, and now it's really changed during the pandemic, so it'll be interesting to talk about. Yeah, looking forward to what you have to tell us about that. So, Bill, give us a quick introduction. Sure, thank you. So, I'm Bill Ferreira. I'm a partner in our government contracts and education practice, and I do quite a bit of work across both our uh, life sciences sector and our higher education sector. Um, much of what I do involves the, the, the variety of things that our hospitals and academic medical centers are doing both domestically and internationally, um, everything from establishing and, and operating public health um, uh, and medical research initiatives um, around the globe to clinical trials and federally funded projects um, across uh, Africa and Asia, and of course, uh, medical practice uh, outside the U.S. and everything that That, that is entailed in that, including um, international telemedicine. I also do a, a good deal of work um, on, on U.S. government grants and contracts, help grantees and contractors navigate the, um, the regulatory regime, both in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. So my perspective on, on telemedicine is, is much more from the healthcare practitioner perspective, and especially those, those healthcare providers that are trying to operate um, uh, treatment programs um, and consultation programs and, and second opinion programs uh, ac across borders, um, including some of the medical research uh, implications of all of that. To kick it off with the basic question, what do telehealth and telemedicine mean and what kind of virtual health products and services are your clients offering or using? I'll jump in. This is Brooke. I'll let Bill speak to the, you know, whether different terms are used in international settings and whether those distinctions are significant. I think in the U.S., they're typically used interchangeably, telehealth and telemedicine these days. A few states do have uh, separate definitions for them, and telemedicine typically referred only to physician services. Uh, Medicare in the U.S. uses the term telehealth, and I think That scene is sort of encompassing a broader range of items and services and a broader variety of healthcare practitioners. So I think that term is becoming more widely used. Traditionally, I think the terms were kind of limited to audio-video interactions between physicians and patients or, or maybe a physician's remote provision of services like a pathologist or a radiologist. But I think now it's really expanded to include like remote monitoring devices and other technologies that allow patients to record and 
and monitor various health factors and practitioners to access that data and you know, interact with their patients in a, in a different way. So in terms of uh, the definition of telemedicine, if, uh, if, if, if someone were to just Google telemedicine, uh, you, you would arrive at um, a website that is what some would consider the source of all knowledge in the world, Wikipedia. Uh, and, and, and Wikipedia defines telemedicine as, as a synonym for telehealth. Uh, and that's all described as the distribution of health-related services and information via electronic information and telecommunications technology. And then they give some examples such as remote clinical services, uh, diagnosis and monitoring, and so on. So that's one example of a telemedicine uh, definition. It, it is probably worth noting, though, that, that there are some countries that have a, a regulatory definition of telemedicine, and some don't. Take, for example, the United Arab Emirates, where there are quite a few uh, practitioners around the globe who are trying to run programs in. Um, and uh, the UAE is, is among the more definition-heavy jurisdictions. There is a federal telehealth regulation in the UAE, and it, it defines various terms under the umbrella of, of remote health services. Uh, and all of it includes um, uh, virtual health products and, and services like remote medical monitoring and medical intervention, remote diagnosis, uh, remote prescriptions, uh, remote consultations, and so on. And then you would have each um, uh, emirate may, may, may further define terms like telemedicine and telemonitoring and, and, and teleconsultation. All of this, of course, in, in accordance with local standards and local administrative decisions. Um, and you have other countries similar to that that are very definition heavy in terms of what, what telehealth and telemedicine means and what it looks like from a regulatory perspective. Bottom line is, I think all of this revolves around the fact that technology has, has changed the, the way that the healthcare industry operates. And uh, certainly companies and providers are going to need to uh, adapt to stay competitive. I do want to mention, uh, in terms of the, all these definitions of, 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 of telemedicine and telehealth, um, that the, the firm just recently issued a new publication called Virtual Health Horizons 2020. Uh, and this was a collaboration among many practices across the firm. Um, we, we, we cover in that publication some of the opportunities and the potential legal hurdles uh, for, for organizations that are involved in, in telehealth and in remote monitoring. We discuss issues like um, market access and reimbursement and uh, privacy and cybersecurity and, and contracting and, and IP and liability. Uh, so it's, it's a handy publication and you can download that from our website or contact any of us and, and we'll make sure we send it to you. Thank you, Bill, for mentioning our new guide. Um, I'm going to include the link to download in the description of this episode. Brooke, you just mentioned the disruption um, telehealth companies experience over the last couple of months. What was the uptick of the use of telehealth during this pandemic? Well, I, I would have to say the uptick in use of telehealth has been, you know, a seismic shift. Um, I've been working on telehealth and, uh, you know, regulatory and legislative issues for a number of years. And mostly there have been sort of incremental expansions and increases in use over time. And then literally, virtually overnight, the whole healthcare system in the U.S. Uh, sort of pivoted to not only allowing it, but in many cases, um, really requiring the use of telehealth. And so it, it's been pretty, pretty unbelievable. Someone said on a, a webinar I attended recently, 
the the boulder we were trying to push up a hill has turned into a snowball racing down the other side and we're trying to catch up. And I think that's a sort of good visual image of, of what it has seemed like. Um, just as an example, I happened to see an article the other day that um, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, which is just one health insurer, uh, was receiving about 200 telehealth claims in February uh, in February of this year, and now in mid-May they're receiving more than 38,000 per day. So I think that's just an illustration of how things have changed so dramatically in a short period. And I'll jump in. So I mean, as Brooke said, it seems like almost overnight uh, the, the telehealth and the telemedicine industry has has come into its own. Uh, clearly demand for this kind of virtual care is surging and it's surging not just domestically, but internationally as well. Um, I, I, I bet there are some folks listening right now who have had their first virtual doctor visit over the past couple of months. So it, clearly uh, telemedicine is becoming the way of life. Um, and, and this obviously makes sense during a pandemic for, for social distancing reasons. Um, it, it reduces pressure on, on hospital infrastructure. Uh, there was a report out of China that at the height of COVID, more than 50% of all of China's doctor visits were, were virtual. Uh, so that's, a, as Brooks said, a seismic shift. Uh, but even before this crisis, I do think there was a trend worldwide toward remote, uh, more remote patient care and remote second opinions. Uh, and this is an area where I think you know, we as a firm have been active for a while uh, through our digital health initiatives uh, and otherwise. And, and, and we're seeing now that the regulatory barriers are coming down in record time to, to facilitate these kinds of patient services. Uh, there, there was just an article the other day about how the telehealth industry has engaged quite a few lobbyists uh, to, to help make sure that the regulatory regime uh, never reverts uh, to where we were just a few months ago. Uh, so it seems like we are, we are probably never going back to where we were just a few months ago. It always has two sides. On the one side are the companies who are adapting to the new situation and the pandemic itself and how they now have to increase their business. But we are on the other side, we have the regulators. So what kind of changes have you seen as far as licensing, coverage restrictions, reimbursement? And in addition to that question, what change do you think had the biggest impact for now? Brooke, do you want to take that from the domestic side, and then I'll jump in on the on the international side? Sure. I mean, I, yeah, as you said, Julius, you know, as the as the world kind of pivoted overnight to to using telehealth, the regulators on both the federal and the state level in the U.S. Uh, scrambled to kind of put in place regulatory waivers or special exceptions or guidance that would uh, facilitate this, and then the insurers, both the government and private insurers quickly lifted or altered their coverage restrictions and in some cases changed their reimbursement policies to make telehealth more available and, and more accessible. So the, the regulators were definitely sort of, you know, working in tandem to, to make this possible. In terms of, you know, what had the biggest impact, it's really hard to pick a single change that's had the most impact, but I'd have to say in the U.S., allowing Medicare patients anywhere in the country to receive telehealth services in their homes has been huge. Uh, historically, it was limited to, to Medicare patients in rural areas, and they had to go to certain sites in order to access telehealth services. So that's been a huge change. Uh, and private insurers have really expanded their 
coverage policies to allow much wider use of telehealth as well. And then I would also just have to note that, you know, many states have temporarily allowed physicians and sometimes other provider types uh, who are licensed in other states to offer telehealth services into that state with having to go through the process of getting an in-state license, which can be very costly and time-consuming. And that has really expanded the availability of telehealth providers to, to patients in many states. And Bill, I'll let you, you speak to the uh, international front. Sure. Let me just bring a, a quick international perspective to that, um, to, to, to the licensing issue in particular, because perhaps more interesting on the global scale are, are the changes that we hoped would occur, uh, but, but did not actually occur uh, in, in terms of uh, physician licensure and registration requirements. Um, it, it, what we're finding is that the, the COVID crisis has pushed nearly every country to at least consider liberalizing its telemedicine regulatory regime. And in some cases that has occurred, but um, it, it has not necessarily facilitated the cross-border practice of medicine for, for a physician or for a provider. Um, in fact, there, there remain some, some major challenges. Uh, for, for example, for a U.S. physician uh, who, who aims to practice remotely across borders in, into another country, uh, for, for direct diagnosis and, and treatment purposes. Um, and, and this is, I think, among the most challenging aspects of any international telemedicine program because uh, a, a healthcare organization can, can be penalized uh, and liable for employing a physician who provides these sorts of healthcare services across borders and who's supposed to be, of course, licensed or registered in a particular country to provide those services, for example, the country of the patient, uh, but if they're not so registered, uh, then of course the, the, their employer can, can be liable for that. Uh, and we haven't seen a loosening of the restrictions there. In fact, in some countries we've seen quite the opposite um, in, in that there, there's a bit, a bit more protectionism to ensure that anyone who's practicing into the country um, is properly licensed locally. Uh, but, but all that said, you know, the, the, there continues to be uh, uh, growing and growing demand for, for these sorts of remote services and remote second opinions um, around the world. And, and various countries are opening up in the sense that they, they are permitting um, like peer-to-peer -peer and physician-to-physician -physician consultations uh, without considering that to be like the unlawful practice of medicine um, in, in that country. Um, and usually there are some limits uh, as to what, what is permitted, uh, whether you know, a final diagnosis is permitted or a prescription is permitted or psychiatric assessment is permitted by, by a foreign doctor who's, who's uh, practicing remotely. Uh, but I think we'll see more and more of this um, over the coming months um, and, and years as there's growing um, interest in everything virtual. The question is on the international scale. Obviously, the licensing is a big issue and um, cross-border practicing, but the question of reimbursement. So which insurance is going to be liable for the costs that were produced during this cross-border work? Indeed, that, that, is, a, that is a country by country challenge. Um, and, and there really isn't a single answer uh, to that particular question. Uh, but, it, but it is something that, that providers and physicians are thinking about, but, but also thinking about, you know, should we be worried about that? Or are, are we really targeting the patients who are covered by insurance? Or are we target, targeting a different subset of patients who, who may not uh, who, who may not be all that interested uh, in, in whether or, or whether or not insurance will actually 
cover a particular second opinion or a particular um, type of treatment. And since there are so many different systems on the market right now, is that something the regulators have to focus on to make sure that um, the providers and the patient receive the right service as well as the kind of backup from insurance companies, for example? Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, that we're in a situation where I think the, the, the regulatory regime and international regulators really haven't caught up to where both our clients want to be and where our patients want to be. Um, th th there is some catching up that has happened over the past uh, several uh, weeks and months, uh, but we're still a long way from any sort of uh, consistent approach on the global scale. Uh, th there is progress being made certainly on the, uh, on the local scale in various countries, uh, but a big challenge right now for any provider Uh, that's trying to practice globally is is that there, there there is not a consistent answer from country to country um, as to what the regulatory regime looks like or for that matter what the reimbursement regime looks like. So and I take that coming back to our clients who are dealing with all the issues right now. So how are providers and patients reacting to the increased use of telehealth and are there specific issues you're dealing with right now try to conquer the new developments? I will speak at least uh, for, from what I've seen in the U.S. Um, I haven't seen much in the way of kind of formal studies yet, but from what I've seen and heard from clients and just in the press in general, I would say that mostly providers and patients have really uh, embraced telehealth and kind of love, love the opportunities they're getting. I think consumer demand was already pushing um, for expanded use of telehealth because, you know, patients love the convenience of it. And they're increasingly used to accessing other services electronically, so they're they're comfortable with that in a way that I think wasn't true, you know, even 10 years ago. But I think, you know, a, a lot of providers were, you know, sort of resistant to it. And given the barriers that had been put up by regulators and the restrictions imposed by health insurers, there wasn't a big push for, for providers to change their ways in such a, a dramatic fashion. But now, um, you know, COVID-19 has essentially forced the issue and, you know, sort of ripped off the Band-Aid, so to speak. And I think a lot of providers have been really pleasantly surprised at how well it's working, even for certain patient populations they wouldn't have considered using telehealth for. Um, and they're finding they really like it and, and wondering why this didn't happen sooner. Um, I think in many respects, uh, it's changing the practitioner-patient relationship. I, I spoke with a client um, a, a week or two ago who's a wound care physician who said they had been amazed at how well their patients had been managing with remote guidance on wound care. Um, and that for them, sort of, you know, being with their patients remotely in the patient's homes, you know, meeting their family members, meeting their pets, seeing where they live, had really enhanced the the physician-patient relationship. So I think, you know, there are certainly kind of less tangible advantages like that. Uh, but I think patients may be more open and more communicative with their healthcare providers when they're in the comfort of their own home. And so I think, um, at least in my experience, uh, the, the providers and patients that I've talked to uh, have, have had a very positive impression of it. Agreed, Brooke, and, and obviously patients have had a very uh, have had a largely uh, positive experience here, and and providers I think are now challenged to 
to, to continue that well beyond the pandemic. Uh, and for international patients, if, if, if you're, you know, if you're a patient sitting in Ecuador, you can now quickly get a, a second opinion from a doctor sitting in Massachusetts, um, all of it virtually. So convenience is now king. And I think providers are, are, are racing to gauge the, the market and to serve not just domestic, but international populations as well. Uh, and some of this is, 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 is driven by the recognition that domestic revenues are in decline. Um, especially now during the crisis. Um, and so I think there's going to be even greater interest uh, in, in whether the, the, the global market can somehow make up for the domestic revenue shortfalls. Um, there's clearly going to be a lot of opportunities for collaboration here and partnerships across um, medical centers and hospitals on, on the international scale. Uh, and certainly some new possibilities of, of revenue will, will, will open up there. Um, this type of global collaboration is probably nothing new for, for hospitals or universities or, or research institutions that have you know, you know, long been engaged in, in global health endeavors. Uh, but, but now that you know, modern technology has forever changed the delivery model, I think we're going to see quite a few projects that involve um, hospital-to-hospital contracts and, and collaborations for not just research, but for patient care as well. Uh, and we're already seeing that, um, whether it's a, a tie-up between a US hospital and, and a hospital in Thailand or Brazil or China, uh, involve, involving you know, like a formal uh, support program in terms of telehealth services. Um, uh, we're, we're seeing more and more of that um, as um, these, these opportunities for real-time uh, telecommunications collaboration uh, are really driving better health outcomes. Uh, so uh, th that is something to look out for uh, in the days and years ahead. Perfect. Super interesting. You stole my two last questions about kind of how you see the future and potential business opportunities. But um, I have one last question when it comes to regulatory exceptions um, that were brought in, in during the pandemic. And I'm sitting in Germany, so I'm not as familiar with uh, US, but I, my question is kind of state law versus federal law. I, I read that there were a couple of conflicts between federal and state law. So I wanted to talk to you about and hear your thoughts about um, your expectations on the long term when it comes down to state and federal law. Yeah, it, it is one of the challenges in the U.S. that the licensure and the regulation of healthcare providers is handled on the on the state level, um, and then in terms of payers, you know, Medicare and Medicaid are big federal payers for large chunks of the population, um, and those are you know federally regulated in, in terms of Medicare and both state and federal for Medicaid. And then there are private insurers that are subject to, you know, state regulation. So it is a, a bit of a confusing hodgepodge of, of what applies. Um, I think, you know, in the long run, you know, everybody is wondering what's going to happen. I, I don't see us, you know, kind of going back completely to the status quo. I do think one of the bigger challenges will be whether or not the some of the state licensure um, exceptions or temporary waivers that have been put into place will continue. Traditionally, in-state physicians have kind of resisted opening that up to competition from out-of-state um, providers. So, you know, it'll be sort of a push-pull of, you know, maybe some physicians pushing to get rid of those temporary um, waivers and then 
consumers and others in the state may be pushing to keep them. So I think think we'll see, you know, have to wait and see how that uh, works out in the long run. What we've seen in Germany, and it was just announced a couple of days ago, that a telehealth provider teamed up with a huge private insurance company. And my first thought was that now to get around all the regulations, the, the insurance companies want to offer this service to their customers, but to leverage it a bit, and they're going to provide it as a service through the insurance company. Is this something you saw in the US as well? It's not really a, a way of getting around regulations. I think what we're going to see uh, as you know, the pandemic sort of you know winds down, and there's a question about whether or not these these uh, you know sort of temporary uh, telehealth access um, waivers and exceptions stay in place. I think there will be a lot of you know sort of jockeying and lobbying both on the federal and state front from different stakeholders, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think part of that will be determined by you know, how the policymakers, the members of Congress and uh, people within the agencies, what their experience has been with telehealth, both personally and sort of what they're seeing in terms of, you know, any regulatory concerns that come up. But I mean, what I've been telling my clients is that, you know, to the extent you want to maintain the current expanded use of telehealth, um, you know, you can advocate with, with policymakers, but I'm also telling them to start collecting data um, doing studies to be able to make the case for why this works well and um, to be able to demonstrate, you know, all the advantages that it provides. So I, I think people do need to start planning ahead for, you know, wh what they want to do to keep what's working and, and, you know, work out the bugs that may have come up. I mean, this happened virtually overnight, so obviously it's not a seamless process. So I think people do need to plan ahead for what they want the future to look like. So from my side, and when I take a look at my, my paper, that were all the questions I had for you guys so far. So is there anything else you wanted to, um, to talk about? The, the only thing I would say is that, uh, you know, at, at this stage of where we are, I, I do think that, that providers and physicians are, are looking ahead and, and looking around corners and, and thinking beyond just business and, and revenue. Um, and, and, and really centering attention on, on the overall mission here, uh, because th there is, at the end of the day, a, a humanitarian component here. Um, and, and, th and there's a good story to tell here, right? I mean, for, for example, a, a sick patient um, in, in Kenya or in a, in a Kenyan village, maybe 100 kilometers from you know, the, the nearest hospital. Uh, but, but even in that community, there is someone with a smartphone um, and then that smartphone would connect to a doctor in Nairobi or, and that doctor in Nairobi would, would be connected to a specialist in Washington uh, who can provide a real-time opinion or, or a second opinion. Um, and, and all of this leads to, to better health outcomes on, on the global scale. Um, so in some ways, there's, there's a capacity building component here too, which we should, should not lose sight of. Uh, and that's uh, overall a, a really good story to tell uh, for both domestic and international uh, telehealth and telemedicine. I would just add that in, in addition to the, you know, sort of expanded access that Bill referenced and kind of the humanitarian aspect, I just think the business opportunities are tremendous. And I think we really have to start kind of rethinking care delivery models, um, thinking about how telehealth and other virtual care um, 
can be integrated into the existing healthcare system, how that changes staffing models. Um, we need to think about, you know, what's needed when more care is being provided through remote monitoring or other distant interactions and more care is being provided to patients at home. Sort of try and look into the future. What, you know, what does that look like? What kind of um, practitioners do we need? What kind of technologies do we need? Um, I, I think it's a very exciting time and, and a great opportunity for, for people to think creatively and kind of figure out how to mold what the future should look like. Because I think as horrible as this pandemic has been, at least on the telehealth and virtual care front, it really has opened up tremendous opportunities. Before we end this conversation, I really would like to thank you both for jumping on uh, the podcast with me. And I wanted to plug a virtual health guide again. You will find the link in the description. The guide will cover questions around reimbursement, um, the regulatory pathways, commercial contracts, liability issues, the pharmaceutical perspective. So it's a good start to read through. And if you have additional questions, obviously reach out to us. So again, thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Bill, for taking the time thank of your day. Thank you. Our pleasure. Um, to jump on this podcast. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Brooke and Bill, reach out via hogenlovels.com. In addition, so you're not missing out on any information regarding industry developments as well as our activities in this sector, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Leave a like, leave a comment. Thank you for tuning in. We are going to return with more in about two weeks. So please join us again when we're talking The Cure.